This week, I was walking around my neighborhood, walking the dog, and I saw a neighbor who was kind of, you know, loading everything into the back of their SUV like they're getting ready to head out to the beach or to the pool. Have you ever seen when someone's doing this and they've got everything like this? And they, you know, they only have two kids and they're not so little. So I was curious about all the stuff until I was saying, you know, like, hey, good morning. And I see that there's so many books in their hands. And I was like, oh, you're going for an extended stay somewhere. And, I, you know, I said, like, hey, you know, have fun. It looks like you got a lot of reading. And she just responded, oh, yeah, this is when I get all my reading in. Like during the year, can't do it. But during the summer, I catch up on what I really wanted to read. Are anybody beach readers? or pool readers. Okay, some of you, you're, you're, are, is anybody like, uh, I don't read regardless of season? Yeah, excellent. Uh, that stinks. Um, you know, I, I love, uh, I would say reading, but more listening. I'm a, I'm a listener, so I do a lot of audible, but recently, and maybe recently when I say like over the past couple of years, I have found summers to be a time when I read a lot of biographies. I don't know why. I just like stories of people. I like stories of alive people, stories of dead people. I've become good friends with a lot of dead people recently. And, uh, you know, some of them I never thought that I would ever read. And because they're dead, I'll never meet them. Actually, most of these people I will likely never meet. I think I've finished somewhere over like 30 or 35 biographies in the last couple of years. But some of my favorites... Um, here's some of my faves. I just finished this one uh, a couple weeks ago. This is Eugene Peterson's uh, biography. If you don't know who Eugene Peterson is, you're reading the message at any time, that's the guy, okay? He's the guy who wrote that this was an excellent book, and then I put all the rest of his books on my list to, to go. Uh, another one of my faves was uh, this one, Storyteller by Dave Grohl. If you don't know Dave Grohl, drummer of Nirvana, then lead singer of Foo Fighters, and he can tell a killer story. And you just think, unreal. It was an excellent book of stories. Uh, I really enjoyed one by uh, Becoming by Michelle Obama. There's some phrases that she uses that really just resonate with me. And I understood. And I was like, oh, this was so good. Uh, highly suggest that one. Uh, I, I really got into this one from Elon Musk. Uh, he didn't write it, but someone else did. And I learned so much in this book about what I'll never be able to do because I'm not thinking of living on Mars. Um, that's all he thinks about. And so, you know, it was, that one was really, really good. And I'd be curious if it was updated, what, he would, what they would say now. Um, I loved, because I'm an Office fan, The Bassoon King. Anybody read this one, Bassoon King? Yeah, I can't see this being a page turner for many of you like Bassoon King. This is Rain Wilson's uh, biography that he wrote. It was so good. Um, I just loved it. And then uh, another one was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This was by Eric Metaxas, and this book right here, if you don't know Bonhoeffer, uh, I read this years ago, and I continue to go back to this. This guy was a pastor in Germany during World War II and was allegedly part of assassination attempts with Hitler, for, over, for Hitler, okay? If you're like, what? A pastor? Go read it. It's so good. It's so good. And then the last one is, is a little story that I'd like to tell. It's about three bad brothers you know so well. It started way back in history with Ad Rock, MCA, and Mike D. Anybody? 
Beastie Boys. Okay, this is the Beastie Boys. If you missed that lyric, Paul Revere, it's another history thing. It's okay. Um, Beastie Boys, I grew up listening to these guys. This book was so good. And if you listen to it, they've got all different people telling the story. If you read it, they've got pictures of everything. It's so good. And, you know, it's funny, as I've read all of these and listened to all these, people that I saw as musicians or politicians or TV stars or these theological giants simply became human. They, they just became human beings like me. While every story that I read was, was ridiculously unique, I felt like each person was wrestling through questions that I asked myself about my life here right now. They, they made mistakes that I've made, but they've also made mistakes I've almost made, and I had a chance before I made the mistakes to learn and not make that same mistake. I've realized so many, in so many of these books, every victory that they have, it's not theirs alone. It is usually built on a host of people who surround them that they get the credit for it, but it's really everyone else who has impacted it. And I just know that as I read these books, let me tell you, if you're not a biography reader, go dive in because there's so much you can learn from other people's lives. Not to shame yourself or to tell yourself to do more, but just to learn. And this right here is really what we are going to do for the remainder of the summer in our new series, The Story of Moses. In, in The Story of Moses, for the next eight weeks, we are going to sift through the first couple of books of the Bible together to look at his story because his story is scattered throughout those first five books. And as we look at them, we're going to just stop and ask the question really what would a biographer, someone who was writing a story about Moses, ask? Where did he come from? What did he do? Why did he do those things? What insecurities did he wrestle with? What victories did he have and who was a part of it? Where were his biggest failings and things we may look over? In this series, we have absolutely no desire to, to make Moses out as this great hero or unbelievable zero, but really our desire is to humanize Moses, to learn from this celebrated man of faith. So that's what we're going to be doing for the next couple weeks. Sound good? Yeah. All right. What I would love for you to do, if you are in person, I would love for you to bring a paper Bible with you. All right? So if you have a Bible with you at, or at home, um, don't leave right now to go get it. But each week for the remainder of the summer, please bring your Bible with you here on Sunday mornings. And if you're watching with us online... Um, if you're with us online, do me a favor, make sure that you bring your Bible right ready for service, like you're ready to worship, bring it ready with highlighters or colored pencils or pens, whatever it is, because we're going to be looking into this together. I would love like a good biography. You read it, just go ahead and put it right in front of you. All right. So we're going to be doing this. So if you have a Bible, bring it. If you don't have a Bible, we will give you one. Just let us know. We would love for you to have it. It's our gift to you. So today we're going to start in the book of Exodus together, the book of Exodus, and we'll be in chapter one. So if you have your Bibles, Exodus will be the second book of the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, and uh, it should be pretty easy to find. So just kind of scoot over a couple pages, you'll get there. And it's right after Genesis, okay? Let's jump right into verse one. And, and I will say, if you have your phones with you and you normally use that, you could use that now, but next week, bring your paper with you. I'd love for that. Exodus chapter one, verse one. These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is, Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his own family. 
Now, I will say when we start reading passages in the Bible that start with, here are the names, we skip this, right? We, we, let's, can we all be honest? We tend to skip these things or we skim them just to try to get a name and then we could check the box that we read it on our soap card. We want to get to the meat of the story and we skip these genealogies. The problem with when we do that is we're taking this amazing book that we've got reading it as 21st century Americans and missing what the Jewish and Hebrew readers would have found important. So they wrote it with an intention that would have been important for the first time this was read. We skip it because we just don't feel like reading names. We miss something when we do this. Now, you have to remember, this book was not written in English. I know that may sound shocking. Um, it wasn't written in the King James Version at any point or the NIV. This was a book that, what language was this originally written in? Hebrew. This is a Hebrew story. It's a Hebrew book. And so while we call this book Exodus, that's based off the Greek translation, the Hebrew readers call this the book of Shemot. Okay, the book of Shemot. Say that with me. The book of Shemot. See, you're learning. This is good. And, and Shemot simply means names. That's what this book is. This is a book of names. And the title comes from this very first verse. Because it's telling us the names of the people that we're going to be reading about. Right? The names that we see here that we tend to skip over all the time are the important things in the book of Exodus. It's a book of names. And we're going to be telling the story of Moses by looking at the names of people in his life. Because names are important, especially to Hebrew readers. Because these names that they would give each other, they spoke about the history that led to you. They spoke about who you were and your character, and they spoke this virtue and, and hope into your future. Names had such value. Moses will be one of the names that we're going to discover, but let me tell you, it is not the only name in this story that matters. And the Hebrew of this book is even more important. When we look at this first verse, can I tell you, it's amazing. I, I looked at a host of different translations to see if any of them actually translated this first verse the way the Hebrew is written. And a majority of English translations miss something right at the beginning. Every one of the translations misses something that starts this verse, and it's nowhere. It's the word and. The word and is what starts this book. How, how many of you have ever heard, you cannot start a sentence with the word and? All right, did anybody learn this growing up besides me? You can't start a sentence with the word and. Uh, I, I learned this very early, and the reality is, I know it's going to shock some of you guys, it's not true. That's, that's not true. That's like saying Pluto's not a planet. No, it is. It is. It doesn't matter what you say, okay? Right? And you can actually start a sentence with and. It's a coordinating conjunction. If you don't know what that means, that's okay. I didn't know what it meant either. I still kind of don't understand what it means. But here's what I know is that every grammar Nazi, you know those people who correct everything you say? It's like whom, not who. And you're like, I don't care. You know what I mean. They all say the same thing. And you can start a sentence with and when you're trying to make a point. And this Right here in Exodus, what I love is that this verse starts out in the Hebrew with the verse with the word and. And then you're like, Jimmy, why does that matter? It's a stupid little word. 
It matters because and connects it to what came before it. And is the word that says you can't understand this part of the story of names until you understand that there's a story before it called Genesis, which is the English, again, translation, not the Hebrew one. But there's a story before it that matters. So you've got to connect these two. Exodus simply is chapter two of a five-chapter book all together. You can't just pull it out and say it's separate. It is together. And the Hebrew people, what I love is, they had no problem starting sentences with and. This nation had no problem starting their books with and. They inserted and, and we don't see it in our translations, into so many books. When you look through the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, you will find and. That starts out Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. It starts Ezra. It starts um, Nehemiah. It starts Esther, and it starts Second Chronicles. I don't know why they didn't do it with first. Maybe they're like, and no, no, and there. Start something new. But here's what we've got: is and connects all of these stories together. They viewed their entire story, their entire history for each of them individually as well as a nation as a series of ands connected to what's behind, setting up what's to come. When we talk about the life and the story of Moses together, we have to start in Exodus 1. And you know what's crazy about Exodus 1? The name of Moses isn't mentioned anywhere. His name is not even in it, but it's what starts the story of Moses. And we have to do everything in our power to resist the 21st century urge to go, but the names just don't matter. Let's get to the story where he's pushed into the Nile. No, 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 no. We have to resist that because the first lesson that we will learn from the story of Moses is true for every single one of us. Your story started before you did. Let me just say that again in case you need to hear it, but your story started before you did. Your story is your story, but it's not just your story. It started with people way before you who made choices and is the beginning of every single one of our stories. And good biographies reinforce the idea that you cannot know why a person does what they do until you know where they've come from. That's why most of the biographies we read tell us about parents of the, that person that we're like, why would it matter that they grew up in Montana? I'm in New Jersey. That's flyover territory. You know, you just go, like, because it matters and it influences their choices. So let's start again, because Moses would never be a name in our story or in the story of Exodus if it weren't for some of the names that came before him. So let's start again in Exodus 1.1. Here we go. You ready? Uh, would you stand with me? We're going to read this, to, and I'll read this. Exodus 1 starts with, and these are the names, the Shema, these are the Shemat of the son of Israel, that's Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his own family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. It's the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. These names right here, 
are the names that ground our story. They're in Egypt, and we, we're told that they're in Egypt. We're told how many, and what this does is in any biography, it grounds us in a specific time and in a specific place. So we know where the story is taking place. We can anchor ourselves in history. And as we continue in this passage in verse 6, what we find is that in time, Joseph and all of his brothers died ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, they had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Now, what's funny when we read this is we miss what I think the original Hebrews, Hebrews reading it would have gotten immediately and that the Israelites in the first couple of verses here are doing exactly what God has told them to do. Be fruitful and multiply. Make lots of babies and fill the land that you are in. Their multiplication, according to God, would be a blessing to the world. That's what he told them to do. I want you to bless the world by multiplying and occupying it. It's a pretty cool blessing, isn't it? This is the blessing he gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1 verse 28, he says, And God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and he said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Sounds pretty great, right? Then just jump to chapter 9. He says to Noah, Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. If you go a couple chapters later, you find Abram. Abram, And he says to Abram in chapter 17, I'll make a covenant with you, by which I will guarantee and give you countless descendants. This is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm changing your name. See, names are important. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations, and I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations, and kings will be among them. Again, in Genesis 26 and Genesis 28, you find it to Isaac, you find it to Jacob, and what we find is throughout this story of Genesis, they have been given a task and a covenant with God, a deal. Be fruitful and multiply. And chapter 1 of Exodus is so cool because it's tied to the very same language that God's been using to start this story. Be fruitful, multiply. The goal of this verse was to show how God was faithfully fulfilling the covenant that he made with these people. In over approximately about a 430-year period while they are in Egypt, they have filled up the land. They were given the land, and they filled it. I mean, that's great for the Hebrews, right? Not so great if you're Egyptian. You're kind of nervous that this is a fifth pillar developing right now. What do you do? And so check out verse 8. They saw things differently. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us. They're stronger than we are. We got to make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, if war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies and fight against us. Then, then they'll escape from our country. All right, we're talking a 400-year gap from Moses or from uh, Joseph to where we find Exodus chapter one in our current, situa current situation. I find it hysterical that we read that a king came to power who knew nothing of Joseph. Um, if you aren't familiar with the story of Joseph, you'll find that as well in Genesis. And his story simply summed up is there was a moment 
that a famine was about to break out and destroy the world. But the king, the pharaoh, had dreams that no one could interpret, and Joseph happened to be able to interpret it, saying, God's going to send a famine. Let's bank what we can for a couple of years and then sell everything to the world, and we will make out well, but everyone will live. Great. Moses is literally the hero of the world, the known world at this point. I don't know about you, but you think this is a story that might be passed down in Egyptian history. I mean, they carve everything into stone, right? But somehow this king doesn't know about him. Almost all theologians that I've read, specifically Jewish rabbis, are convinced didn't know the story means I conveniently forgot that story. Did you empty the dishwasher? I forgot. You never asked me. I didn't know you did. Yeah, I didn't know you asked me. No, no, no. You, you were, we were right together. I didn't know. Same thing, okay? That's what most of them are thinking. Somehow he knew nothing because there was a bigger issue at hand. This blessing of multiplication became his issue of uprising. The new king, he's threatened by the size of the Hebrews, and so he makes a decision about this tribe of Hebrews, and he makes this, can we just call it for what it is? He makes this decision out of fear and anxiety. That's what this is. Do you see it in there? He's worried about being overtaken. And, and this king is motivated by fear to take action. And I'll just leave this right here for now, that any decision that we make in our lives that's based and rooted in fear and anxiety has the potential to rob us from the blessings of God. Any decision that we make rooted in fear and anxiety will rob us of the blessing because God said, be fruitful and multiply to them because this will be a blessing. And that blessing was perceived as a threat. And he said, no, we're going to squash this. Fear, let me tell you, is a horrible master and motivator. This king is neck deep in fear. He's terrified of losing control. And then he tells all of his Egypt, you know, commanding armies and slave drivers, he's like, listen, do me a favor. I need you, instead of treating them maybe kindly, but I think if he was treating them kindly, he wouldn't be worried about them uprising. You know what I mean? So he's worried about something here. He's like, here's what we need to do. We need to figure out a way to squash this. The goal, stop them from making babies. No more baby making, no more growth. So in verse 13, the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. You see the Egyptians here, they put down the hammer to keep them from multiplying. They put them to work. Bitter and taxing work, brick making, harvesting in the fields in the hot days. This didn't work. They went home exhausted and continued to multiply. So Pharaoh comes up with a new plan. In addition to these ruthless demands in verse 15, it says, Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave the order to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah, When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. Well, that escalated pretty quick, huh? Work them hard to kill their kids. I mean, fear, when that's what's motivating us, has this way of pushing us to make rash and very unhealthy decisions. Instead of slowing down and assessing a situation, fear speeds up our decision-making process in very unhealthy ways. And Pharaoh jumps from work them hard to kill the boys as they're born. Remember, this is a series about the life and the story of Moses and understanding that his story started before he did. 
This command from Pharaoh right here should have eliminated Moses. This command from the king should have eliminated his brother's backstory, the story of countless of other unborn Hebrew boys at this time. But here we see that there's something that happened that shifted the story. The king has made an edict, kill all the boys, and he tells two people, two Hebrew midwives who likely were overseers of all the other midwives in this tribe, this Hebrew tribe, What's their role? To make sure that these women deliver well, to be there to help them. There are two names that make a difference. In Exodus, if we know this is the story of Moses, but this is a book of names, these two names matter. These two names matter. And the name of the first midwife was Shifra. Try that with me. Shifra. Try it again. Okay, roll that R. It's Shifra. Very good. Shifra. The other name, much more easy. It sounds like it would be in Lion King, but it's Pua. Pua, yeah. You got to put that little space. P-U, space it, and then a, Pua. Come on. There, ah, see, now you're ready. These names, why am I doing this? Because do you know whose name's not mentioned in this chapter? Who the Pharaoh is. No one knows who this king is. Why? Because his name is a footnote. It's not important because these are the names that matter in this story. These are the names, Shifra and Pua. These are the names that change the narrative, the story of Moses. Moses would not exist without Shifra and Pua. These are the names in the story of names, in the book of names, that God looks at and says, you, you have the potential to change the narrative of this entire nation. You carry the influence and God celebrates and uses constantly the humble, the unknown, the lowly, and the overlooked in his story. These Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, this is who he uses. And, and in verse 17, we see because the midwives fear God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women Oh, I love this. Man, come on. I just imagine attitude with this. I imagine this little kickback. Like, listen, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, throwing shade at the Egyptian women here. The midwives replied, they're more vigorous, and they have babies so quickly, we just can't get there in time. Now, are they lying? I don't know. Are they telling a partial truth? I don't know. But what I do know is that they were driven by fear too. But they were driven by a fear of God. Someone so holy, so different, so separate, who had a value for all of life. And they said that his desire for life is more important than a king's desire for control. That his fear to kill is nothing in comparison to his fear to save and desire life. And so they feared God so that these children would live. Oh, I love the two they throw at Pharaoh. Honey, listen, your Egyptian women, they're cute, but they're nothing like our Hebrew women. They just pump these kids out. Like, we can't even get there in time. Now, a king, a man, he's probably like, oh, like, wow, we don't know anything. But he listens to them. I love this. Go kill babies. No, it's too late. These women are champs, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Moses would have never been born without the courage 
and the fear of God that Shifra and Puah had. These are the names today worth remembering, aren't they? These are the names today that it's like, oh, the story of Moses. When's the last time any of us have ever heard uh, 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 those two names before? Anybody else? I mean, really, this is, how many of you have heard the story of Moses at some point? We make cartoons about this one and love it. And we're like, he's a great guy. Look at the hero. He does not exist without these women. His story started before he did it. It starts with these women. And then I wonder who these women's parents were and what they taught them about God so that they would fear God and honor him and his commandments. I could tell you I have never preached a message on these women and I've confessed to God, I'm sorry, because this story is worth celebrating. A story of people who stepped up to save the life of children. Unborn matters, and I will step in and do what I can to preserve it. That matters. And I'll protect these women and make sure they're safe and they're okay. That matters, because God is a God of life who says, you step in. And so Pharaoh takes it to the next degree in verse 22, and he gave the people throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you can let the girls live. This is the final and the worst decision the king has made, and one that, I will be honest, likely results in the death of countless Hebrew boys and girls, or boys at this point, in the Nile River. The Nile River is known in Egypt for bringing life to this nation, and now is an agent of death. Fear made it an agent of death. And with Moses' story starting before he did. From a giant book that we can look at and say, man, we, make, we can't even make it past verse 1 without and and names. Moses' story is connected to names who existed before him. Names of women who stood up with courage with honor, with conviction, and did their job to the best of their ability and said, well, we'll always obey God over man because we fear God, not man. Moses isn't even mentioned. I find this encouraging because you and I, let's just be real, most of us are not going to have a biography written about us when we pass away. You know what I mean? You could think I'm going to be the all-star. I'm going to be the hero. That great, good. I, I hope you do. That'd be a fun one to read. Probably won't be alive. Most of us are sheep for us and puas. Are you cool with being a sheep for us and a pua? Are you cool knowing that your story came from someone else and now you have the privilege, the dignity, and the honor, the... the the beauty of saying, I'm willing to be an and for someone else's story in the future. That I will continue to invest, just like Pastor Will said a little while ago, one Wednesday when we celebrate for people who don't have a Christian family, a Jesus-following family, when you step up and say, I'll, I'll come into my family, be part of this, you change a life. Who's going to know you've done that in the course of history? No one. But God knows your name like he knew their name. Wouldn't it be cool if we were footnotes in someone else's story long down the road because there were footnotes in ours? It's okay to be overlooked by this world if we are seen by God. Amen? You are an and 
connecting part of a story. And I want to tell you that today I stand here as a man who knows Jesus as a result of many people who came before me. But you will never know their names. And even better, I stand here as a changed man because of a name that changed the entire course of history, Jesus Christ. That that name, a name above all other names, a name that, 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 that every knee will bow, that every tongue will confess is Lord of all creation, that at his name my life was changed because we sang, we have so much to be thankful for because we have been forgiven. You and I have the privilege of being associated with the name that matters more than any other name. And when we go into people's lives, we don't carry the name of Jimmy or the name of Logan or the name of Suzanne. We carry the name of Jesus to be the blessing as he has blessed us. That does not happen when we try to make our name more important. This morning, I want to encourage you. Embrace being a footnote. Embrace a life of obscurity to do what's right when no one knows, because Shifra and Pua never knew their names were going to be listed. My guess is they were dead long before this was ever written. But their names exist because God saw them. He sees you. What will you do to bless who's next? Jesus calls us to celebrate together his death every single time that we're together in scripture. He says, when you gather, I want you to eat bread and drink this wine so that you would remember my name, remember the death, my story. And today I would love to celebrate communion with you. So if you have your communion elements, I would love for you to grab them. And if you uh, didn't get a chance to grab them on the way in, just if you raise your hand real quick, uh, it looks like Bill's carrying them. Um, what I love is that for us, the name of Jesus changes everything. Amen? And as you prepare communion, lifting off that top little saran, and Would you stand with me as we celebrate communion this morning? Jesus was with his disciples at a time when his name was a curse on people's lips. A time when he was deserted and soon to be deserted by every single person who said, I will follow you. And he knew it would happen, and yet he looked at his disciples who loved him and would desert him, and he knew how the culture would crucify him figuratively and literally. And he said, as he held up bread, this is my body, broken for you. I imagined him saying, I know your name. And this is the cup, my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. When you think your name doesn't matter, when you think you've done too much that he could never forgive you, he says, not only do I know your name, but I will forgive it all.
our story starts with his, and that's the story we tell. Amen? That's why we celebrate communion every single week together. We need to be reminded his story is the story we tell. We are seated with him on the right hand like we sang. It's his story we take. Let us eat and drink together. May the God whose name is above all names bless you this week with the ability to be the best and to wherever you've come from and to wherever you're going. May you be present and be the name of Jesus and wear that name well to love those who are around you and to serve as our King has served us. May you go with grace and peace in Jesus' name.